If you have your Bibles this morning, would you, first of all, find the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and put a mark, your bookmark there, put a pencil in it, do something. Mark Revelation, chapter 20, because I want you to be able to turn there here in a moment, as we will re, re, uh, refer to that passage later on in the message. Revelation 20, once you have that marked, open your Bible to the book of Psalms, as we look at Psalm number 9. The ninth psalm this morning. As you're finding that, I want to say a word of thanks to our parents who allowed their students to go to the Lead Defend conference yesterday. Uh, Christy and I attended the foundations element of that with the younger group, and I'm just telling you the information that is given there in regard to apologetics and the ability to understand and defend your faith is phenomenal. And your students had the opportunity to be equipped. I appreciate Ashley and Dustin for organizing that opportunity. Psalm number 9. The first verse begins, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sit on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You will lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation." The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Last week, as we examined Psalm 8, we focused on the majesty of God. We looked at how his majesty is revealed. We considered how his majesty impacts our lives. This week, we're moving ahead to the very next psalm to consider another aspect of God's majesty. Last week, we considered 
how God is mightier than all, more noble than all, above all, how he exceeds all, how he is more worthy than all. This week we see that as a result of God's majesty, he holds the position of the divine and holy judge of all. Today, as we look at this psalm, that's exactly what we're considering, the Lord of judgment. Six times we see the word judgment used in relation to God's position over humanity. Another ten times we see the references to the divine act of God's judgment in this psalm. This week we're going to look at the Lord of majesty as he holds the position of judgment. And admittedly, I know this is not going to be a popular subject, and we may lose our online viewership from some. But the truth is this, my friends. If I'm going to tell you the good news of the gospel, you have to know the bad news that precedes the good news. And if we're going to teach and preach the full counsel of God's word, then we can't ignore the parts that are uncomfortable. So today we're going to talk about the judgment of God. Because it is a reality. And it's a reality for every person in this building, every person listening online. So let's just jump in and talk about God's judgment. This is the psalm written by David. It's a psalm that extols the deliverance of God, how God has delivered him. It's a psalm of praise and worship because of the actions of God. But you see throughout the psalm that God's actions of deliverance that produce worship have come in the form of his judgments upon the enemies of David. It's a psalm about judgment. If we recognize the sixth distinct references that say God judges and the ten other implications or references to his acts of judgment, we cannot deny the fact that God's judgment is a reality. This is not something that was made up by people to scare parishioners. This is not something that was just put into place throughout the tradition of religion to make a good story. When we talk this morning about the judgment of God, it is a reality. If God is going to be a loving, just, perfect God, completely holy and righteous, then he has to be a God of judgment. For not to do so would violate his own character and statute. So we're going to look at God's judgment this morning. As we look at God's judgment, here's what I want you to consider that God's judgment is his response to his creation's actions as they relate to his righteous standards. That's what we're talking about here. His response to his creation's actions as they relate to his righteous standards. See, God says in judgment because, well, he is creator and he has established the, the standard of righteousness and he holds his creation to his standard of righteousness. And so when we talk about God's judgment, it is simply how he is responding to what we do, to what we think. He's responding to the heart of his creation in regard to the righteous standard he has set. And when we see it that way, we begin to see that, wow, God is just in his judgment because his creation is so vile in light of his righteous standard. We have fallen so far. Sin has taken us so far away. This morning I want you to know that God 
is the judge. He does set in judgment. God sits in judgment over angels. They're his created beings. We know the reality that Lucifer and a third of the angels that rebelled against God experience his judgment. That judgment, some of them are bound now, the Bible says, and changed. Some of them are not bound, but one day all of them will pass under his final judgment. We know that God sets in judgment over humanity because humanity is his creation. And as his creation, we fall under the jurisdiction of God's judgment. In fact, man is the only aspect of God's creation created in his image. What that means is we are the only aspect of humanity, or humanity is the only aspect of creation that has the ability to interact with God by understanding his righteous standards. All the rest of creation can reflect the majesty of God, but humanity has the ability to understand the majesty of God. All of, other, all of all the other creation that God has done can point to the majesty of God, but only humanity can understand the righteous standards of God. You see, you are created differently than the rest of creation. You're created with the ability to comprehend, to understand, to ascertain God has a righteous standard based on his holiness. Being created by God, we are bound to God's structure of morality and righteousness. See, a lot of people like to set their own standard of morality, their own standard of righteousness, but as God's creation, we are bound to his standard of morality and his standard of righteousness. The world wants to redefine morality. The world wants to reestablish the lines of righteous behavior. They can redefine, they can reestablish, they can redraw the lines all they want. But the reality is this, God has created, and in that authority, he has established the standards of morality and righteousness. And as the creator, establishing such, he holds his creation to that standard. Today, we understand, as God's creation, we are bound to his standard of righteousness. Understanding that makes us accountable before God. As his creation, understanding he has set the standard of righteousness, knowing God's righteous standards, makes us accountable before God's righteous judgment. You see, God can judge every one of us and do so justly because we are bound to his righteous standards. We can't say God judging someone is unfair, unloving. We can't say that God judging someone is a violation of his character. God has established the standard. He's created us to know the standard, and now he holds us to the standard. He is completely just in judging us before his standard. God judges. Now, as we speak this morning about the judgments of God, I want you to know right up front that God's judgments as revealed in the scriptures can either be punitive or prosperous. Nine times out of ten, when we talk about the judgment of God, we talk about the negative aspects of judgment. Sin is being judged. Condemnation has come. But God, in judging, does not always sentence with punitive measures, but sometimes blesses with prosperous measures. You see, as a child of God, 
Your heavenly Father may examine your life, look at the motivation of your heart, examine your actions, your attitudes, and your words, and find that you are pursuing righteousness. You have a desire to pursue His holiness. He may judge your heart to be in line with His and bless you with prosperity as He conforms you to the image of Christ, as He walks with you daily, as He prospers you spiritually. You see, your heavenly Father may judge you worthy of blessing. We talk about blessing, or excuse me, judgment, we're not always talking in a negative context. Now then again, child of God, your heavenly Father may look at the motivation of your heart for what you do and why you do it, and he may judge the motivation of your heart in violation to his righteous standards and bring a chastening judgment upon you to draw you back into relationship with him. So as a child of God, God's judgment could be negative in my life. Because my heavenly father loves me enough to bring disciplinary measures into my life as needed. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm saying. Parents judge the actions, the attitudes, and the motivation of their children on a daily basis. You judge why your kids said what they said. Why your child did what they did. And you respond either with a prosperous blessing or a punitive measure. That's how our Heavenly Father works in our lives. So as we speak about judgment today, understand, we're going to focus a lot on the punitive aspect. Absolutely. But as a child of God, I live in pursuit of His holiness, seeking to be conformed to the character of my Savior, walking in the likeness of Jesus, And as I do so, my father may judge my motivations and my actions, my words, those attitudes I have, and say, I'm proud of what you're doing. So it's not always punitive measures we're talking about. Now, here's the thing. If you're here today and you are not a child of God, you have never come to this place where with a repentant heart, you've fallen before Jesus and given the entirety of your life to him, yielding to him as Lord and Savior, then everything I have to say about judgment is punitive for you. There is no positive aspect to God's judgment for you. If you are not his child, every aspect of God's judgment is negative. So what I have to say to the children of God, the redeemed, those of you who are born again here in just a moment, will not apply to those of you who've never received Jesus as your Savior. Because God's judgment is a very terrifying thing for you. As we consider God's judgment this morning, I want you to know God's judgment is past, present, and future. God's judgment as he is, is eternal. God has been unchanging from before creation. He is consistent now. He will always be who he is, and his righteous judgments are forever unchanging and eternal. His judgments are from the past. They work in the present. They will be there in the future. God's judgment is ongoing as he rules over the affairs of humanity. God brought his judgments to pass throughout history. We have historical record of this. You can look at it. You can see it. You can look in God's word and see the historical record, the documentation of his righteous judgments falling upon heathen nations as well as upon his own children. The record's there. 
His judgments are ongoing in our current, current context. His judgments apply and are at play in this world in which we live currently, today, in our lives, right now. His judgments are applied to humanity in our modern context, specifically within the realm of his children and how they live, his church and how she functions. And my friends, his judgments will culminate in a greater judgment in the future. There will be a final judgment of sinners. There will be a judgment where the servants of his kingdom stand before the bema seat and their works are weighed for their sincerity. Judgment is past, present, and future. So let's look at what this psalm has to say about judgment. Notice the first thing pointed out in this psalm about God's judgment. It's found in verse 4. That's God's judgments are righteous. Verse 4 says, you sit on the throne judging in righteousness. When we talk about God passing judgment, setting in judgment, executing judgment, we need to understand he does so in complete and perfect righteousness. The execution of his judgment is the execution of his justice. God is not corrupt in any way. He's not a judge like we understand in our system that can be swayed according to political convictions or this, that, or the other. The execution of his judgment is in complete justice, perfection, holiness. His judgments are completely righteous. Verse 8 says he executes uprightness in his judgments. He's completely upright. When God issues judgment over an individual, over a nation, over whatever, he is completely upright and righteous, just in that judgment. That's because his judgments are always based on his righteous standards. He won't violate his own standards. And his standards are righteous. That's how he works. And the reality is God holding supreme authority has established the righteous standards that we're held accountable to, and he's revealed those standards. And then as he executes judgment in accordance with his standards, it's all done righteously. And by the way, he will hold us accountable. The Bible here, this text, verse 5, verse 8, verse 19, expresses God's commitment. God is committed to hold the world accountable to his own righteous standards. There's no one in the world, individual, no group, no nation, there's no one in the world that God is not committed to holding accountable to his righteous standards. Every one of us are held accountable to his righteous standards. But in doing that, he's exercising his justice. See, God has set forth his righteous standards. He's explained them in his word. He's provided all that we need to meet his righteous standards while living out his righteousness. So he can judge us. Now, we have to clarify that statement though, right? Because if you're with it the least little bit, you understand. Now, wait a minute. I can't meet God's righteous standards. I can't maintain God's righteous standards. How can you say, Brother Will, that God has provided all I need 
to meet his standard and live in his righteousness. I can say that because the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. That through the ministry of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, I am declared righteous before God. And it's the righteousness of Christ imputed to me that declares me righteous before God. And it's the indwelling of his Holy Spirit that enables me to be empowered to live out righteousness before God. God has declared his righteous standard in his word and he has provided all we need to obtain righteous status and to live in righteousness. But without a relationship with Christ, it's impossible. You'll never be declared righteous or live in the righteousness of God without a relationship with Christ and the indwelling of his spirit. See, God's judgments are righteous and completely just because he's explained them and he's equipped us to meet that standard. He's provided the standard bearer for us who imparts the standard to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing this psalm says about judgment. In verse 7, God's judgments endure forever. They endure forever. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. God's authority is completely unchanging. His character is completely unchanging. I don't know because my mind can't figure it out how long God has been unchanging because I can't understand infinity. Buzz Lightyear knew it was to infinity and beyond, but I can't figure out. All I know is this, before creation and long after this world ends, our God's character is completely unchanging. That means his judgments are foreverly unchanging. They're eternal. They're written in eternity. God has established his righteous judgments and they are unchanging. The condemnation of sin is unchanging. It won't change one day. We won't find one day God changed his character and sin is not condemned ever again. Sin is condemned. Jesus is the only way to escape the condemnation of sin. God's judgment on that won't change. You see, the judgments of God are eternal. They're unchanging. They cannot be undone. God's judgments are permanent. Just look at the description of God's judgments. They're described as being eternally rigid. Verse 5 He's blotted out their name forever and ever. Verse 6, O enemy, destructions are finished forever. Goes on, their memory has perished. Verse 17 says, the wicked shall be turned to hell. That's the Hebrew Sheol. It's a place of exiled punishment from which there is no return forever. Permanent. Period. No change. God's judgments are unchanging. This idea that someone can stand before the judgment of God and go to a place of torment for a while and, well, then God will kind of change his mind and bring them forth into his eternal... No. God's judgments are unchanging. They're eternal. They're permanent. The psalmist goes on to say here that God's judgments are a benefit to us. Now, he doesn't say that directly, but I think we see it. I think the next thing we see is God's judgments benefit the righteous. 
As God brings about judgment in this world, he does so to benefit the righteous. Those who have come to a repentant faith in Jesus Christ, those who are born again, those who are God's children, those declared righteous through the work of Christ, God's judgments work on our behalf. God administers judgments and produces blessings in our lives. You see, as a child of God, I want you to understand, God uses his judgments for, not against us. He uses his judgments for our benefit. If you're a child of God, the judgments of God benefit you. Even when you read the Old Testament and you read about God's judgment falling upon his nation as the nation rebelled against him and he would allow people to conquer him, go back and look through the book of Judges and see God's judgment falling upon his people. But it was for their benefit to draw them back out of idolatry to draw them away from false gods. Look through the writing of the Old Testament and see how God in his judgment allows his people to be carried away into exile, but to purge them and to bring back a remnant committed to him is for their benefit. You see, when God executes judgment, as his children, we find benefit. The psalmist here lists some specific benefits. For example, in verse 9, we find refuge in his judgments. As a child of God, as I witness the judgments of God, I find a refuge there. Because God's judgments are an exercise of his justice. So, God's justice becomes a refuge for me in an unjust world. When I look around the world and I see the unjustness of the world... When I see brothers and sisters around the world being unjustly persecuted, when I personally experience some type of unjust treatment, but I look at the evidence of God's just character in his judgments, there's a refuge, a solace for me in understanding the justice in his judgments. His righteous judgments become this stronghold for me in a time of trouble. The psalmist says we find confidence in his judgments. You see that in verse 10. We develop a confidence because of the judgments of God. To know the character of God by witnessing his holy judgments allows me to grow a confidence in his character. As I see the character of God displayed in the judgments he carries out, I grow in a confidence in the character I see displayed. As I look at the historical records of God's judgment, as I witness the ongoing experiences of his judgment, as I think about the future expectation of his judgment, it bolsters within me a deeper trust of God. It's simply this. Those who know God best trust him the most. And as I understand his judgments, I come to know God even better. So I can trust him even more. The psalmist continues. He says, we find vindication in his judgments. There in verse 12, we find vindication in his judgments. God issued judgment to avenge the blood of Abel. You remember that story? Righteous Abel, murdered by his brother, 
unable to avenge himself, but he didn't have to because God brought judgment to vindicate Abel. He brings vindication to his children through his righteous judgments. You read Revelation 6, you find there that the martyrs are crying out to God, knowing that he will be the one to vindicate their blood. God's righteous judgment brings vindication. What that means for us is this, we understand God has said in his word, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God tells us to leave vindication in the hands of his righteous judgment that frees us, that frees us from bitterness. That frees us from the spitefulness of seeking revenge. That lifts off the burden of seeking to get back at someone as we simply trust God in his righteous judgment to bring vindication. It's liberating. It's freeing. The psalmist says, we find deliverance from the gates of death in his judgment. There in verse 13. Deliverance. From the gates of death. God acts on the behalf of his children to lift them from despair. And he will do so through the workings of his judgment. For example, through the blood of Christ, we see that God the Father has judged us fit for his kingdom and has delivered us from the gates of eternal death. An example of him lifting us from the gates of death. On an eternal experience. That's why verse 14 says we experience his salvation. We experience the salvation of the Lord through that. Through his judgments. And my friends, he continues to lift us by his indwelling power. Daily, he's lifting each of us. The next thing the psalmist says benefits us through the judgments, is that we find worship because of his judgment. You see that in verse 1, verse 2, verse 11, verse 14. We find worship because of his judgments. That is, in the workings of God's righteous judgments, we have this continual reason to worship because we see his goodness, his justice, his righteousness through his judgments. The judgments of God are something that the children of God look to and it draws us to a place of worship because in them we see the character of our God. I would dare say even among God's children, when God looks at our lifestyles and judges them fit for chastisement, there's worship there. Even when God uses disciplinary judgments in our lives, He's doing so to work for our correction and our sanctification. And in that, we have reason to celebrate the perfecting of our faith. See, judgment leads to worship among the children of God. So we see these benefits within the judgment of God. This psalm goes on, though, to reveal another truth about God's judgment. And that is this, God is known by his judgments. God is known by his judgments. You see that in verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. This refers to the reality that regardless of what your attitude or opinion or belief is about God, 
you will one day know God in reality because of his judgment. No one who has ever redefined God, ignored God, or claimed there is no God will fail to come to the place where they recognize God for who he is, but it will happen through his judgment. God will ultimately be known because of his authoritative judgment. Everyone will realize this. Those who have rejected God will finally come to recognize God in his true majesty as they stand before him in divine judgment. It will happen for everyone. That's the reality. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed man wants to die, and then comes the judgment. Every person who's ever walked upon this earth, every person who's ever been born into this world, every person who will ever live, it's appointed them to die and then stand in judgment. And in that judgment, they will recognize the true majesty of God. There's no escaping this. No one can flee from this judgment. No one can get out of it. No one can get around it. There will be no wicked person who will escape God's judgment. And everyone will be forced to acknowledge his deity, his divine nature, his majesty. Verse 15, 16, and 17 elucidate on this. In verse 15, we see that the world has sunk into a pit of depravity and perverseness, a pit of self-indulgent, of post-Christianism that has ensnared the world and will lead them to the judgment of God. In verse 16, we see those who want to live according to their own standards, their own version of truth, their own ideas of God, and these ideas will ensnare them and bring them to judgment before God. Verse 17, you read about all those who forget God those who simply ignore him, those who pay him lip service, those who just don't have time for him, who all stand condemned before his righteous judgments. What we find here is that all these will be entrapped by their sin and, and they will face a destiny of eternal destruction because of their rejection of God. That rejection brings eternal Judgment. They'll come to know God in his majesty. Verse 20 says that all stand before God will know that they are just but men. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Standing in judgment, every person will recognize the magnitude of God's majesty and just how small he or she really is. Frailty and fear will replace arrogance and self-sufficiency when people stand before God. Those who ignore God in this life will have an eternity in the lake of fire to consider his glory and his majesty, but it's too late then. God will be known by his judgments. In fact, Romans 14 tells us every single one of us will meet and bow before the Lord Jesus. Every one of us. Every person in this world. The thing is, you can meet Jesus as Savior, or you can bow before him as judge. 
You can meet Jesus as the Lamb of God or as the fierce lion of judgment. You can meet Jesus in his grace or you can bow before him in condemnation. But you'll meet him and bow before him either way. He'll be known by his righteous judgment. I want you to look at Revelation 20 for just a moment. In Revelation 20, beginning with verse 11, we do see a description of this righteous judgment whereby all men will know the majesty, the deity, the power of our Lord. Revelation chapter 20 describes this final judgment upon those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 20, beginning with verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. The death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is known, my friends, as the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment. A judgment you don't want to have a part of. A judgment, though, that many people scoff at, don't believe in, or maybe don't fear. Some of you who go back a ways will remember the greatest country song ever written. And in the last verse of that song, the singer says, The only time I know I'll hear David Allen Coe is when I stand in Jesus' final judgment day. He doesn't want to stand there, my friends, I guarantee you. No one wants to stand in front of the Lord at this time. No one wants to stand at the great white throne judgment. This is the period at the end of the sentence on the final page of the last chapter of the saga of God and his interaction with humanity. This is it, the end. You don't want to stand at the great white throne judgment. This is a judgment of those who have rejected Christ, those who ignored Christ, those who will not give their lives to Christ. I'm just going to give you an overview this morning of this judgment. To begin with, I want you to see verse 11. It depicts the setting of the judgment. The setting of the judgment is the great white throne. It's great because the one who sits on it has supreme power, supreme authority. There is none greater than the one upon the throne. The one upon the throne has ultimate authority and power to issue judgment. So great is this one that the text says the earth and heaven fled from him, but there was no place to hide. There's no place to hide from this great one on the throne at this judgment. There's no escape. It's a white throne because the one who sits on the throne is pure and holy. This one of great authority who's pure and holy is the Lamb of God. 
In John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is the one who's been granted the authority to sit on the throne of judgment. And so great is his appearance that people melt away in fear and want to flee, but there's no place to flee. See, worthy is the lamb who was slain and raised again, worthy of honor and glory and worship, and worthy to serve as the holy judge of all those who have rejected him. He sits on the throne of judgment. This throne, this throne is not the seat of a king to be worshiped, but is the seat of a judge to be feared. Those standing before the throne on that day will stand in fear that we lack the vocabulary to describe. Because it is the end. There is no other chance. In verses 12 and 13, we see the summons to judgment. These verses reveal the summons. That is the call to the judgment. The dead, small and great, are called forth. No one can ignore this summons to this judgment. It says every person, young and old, wealthy and poor, powerful and weak, prominent and unknown, every person who has denied Jesus will stand before his judgment. Every person. The dead from thousands of years past will be called forth to stand before this throne. Those who have rejected Christ and they're there and his return comes, they will stand before his throne. Everyone who has rejected him will stand before him in judgment. On that day, there'll be vile, wicked people. There'll be atheists, there'll be agnostics, there'll be church members. There'll be people who have been baptized. There'll be good moral people. There'll be upstanding people. There'll be people who say they believe in Jesus because they know about him, but they never really gave him their lives. All standing in condemnation as they're summoned before him. Verse 12 also provides the substantiation for judgment. That is the evidence. What's the evidence for this judgment? Well, the text says that there are books brought forth. There's evidence that have been kept in books. It says the books were opened, and then another book was opened, the book of life. These books, we know what it contained in some of them. There's debatable, maybe, if you want to debate what they could be. I think one of the books is probably the book of the law, the scriptures, the righteous standard of God revealed to us. Paul taught that the law condemns and those standing condemned are judged by the law. I think one of the books must be the record of each person's life because it says the books were opened and they were judged according to their works that were written in the book. The books opened and the Lord brings forth all the evidence of your vileness or he brings forth all the evidence of your good morality. But to clinch your piece of evidence is this, where he points out, here's where you could have accepted Jesus, but you did not. Here's where you had an opportunity to call out to Jesus, but you refused. 
And the final book is the book of life. It contains the record of repentant faith whereby one has yielded to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the text says, if your name's not in it, you're cast away into the lake of fire. That's the evidence. Verse 15 depicts the sentencing of this judgment. The sentencing. See, those standing before God on this day, those standing at this judgment, there's one verdict. It's guilty. There's one sentence. It's the lake of fire. This is the place the Bible says is a place of eternal torment and punishment that God created for the devil and his angels. Yet it is the place of eternal damnation where everyone who has rejected Christ is cast. This is the second death, the Bible says, the spiritual death throughout eternity where you're separated from God's presence, his love, his grace, his mercy. A lake burning with fire. An unending existence in such a place. That's the sentence for rejecting Christ. You read Revelation 20. And it sobers up your thoughts. Because it's real. And it's going to happen. No one will escape it. Every person who has told Jesus, no thank you, will stand before him in righteous judgment and be cast away. And remember, we've already established that God's judgments are unchanging. He won't change his mind at the last moment. You sealed your own destiny when you rejected Christ. But can I tell you, my friends, that God does not desire for anyone to stand before the great white throne? That's not his desire. God isn't sitting there with this vindictive attitude saying, I can't wait to get you there. In fact, he's done everything he can to keep you from being there. The Bible says that God is not slack concerning his promise as some men Men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's a promise that all will come before the judgment of God, but he's long-suffering, he's tearing, he's waiting, he's patiently giving you opportunity to come to repentance because he doesn't want you to stand before the great white throne. God's desire is not for you to be there. And he's done everything he can do to keep you from being there. The Bible says that in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God knows the terrible reality of the great white throne judgment. And to keep that from being a reality for you, he sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. He sent Jesus to step into your place, to bear your sins, to hang on the cross, to experience God's wrath upon him as he removed the wrath of God from you through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. You don't have to stand before the great white throne if you'll call out to Jesus in repentance because he has established the rescue He has stepped in to be your defense lawyer at the judgment. He has done all that he can do to remove. That's what propitiation really refers to. He removed the condemnation of sin from you if your faith is in him. You see, if you stand at the great white throne judgment, 
It'll be your own fault. Because God has done everything in his power to keep you from being there. He's taken care of the problem of sin. He's brought the remedy. He's brought the rescue from the condemnation. He has brought a way for you to be declared innocent and blameless in his sight. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is there. He's done it all. All you have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I admit it, and I believe it, and I'm sincere in this. I give you my life. If you stand at the great wine throne judgment, it's your own fault. And when the books are opened, this day will be on record. And God will say, remember that day? March 6, 2022, you had the chance. You said no. It's a reality that God doesn't want for you, but it's a reality nonetheless if you reject Christ. Let me wrap this up. Let's look back at what the psalmist says here. David talks about how we are to respond to God's judgment What is our response to God's judgment as his children, as the redeemed, as those who have come to faith in Christ? Look at the description of verse 1 and 2. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing your praise, or I will praise your name. There's the response. There's the response. As a child of God, as I understand the judgment of God, I respond not with fear, not with dread. I respond differently. To begin with, the text says we should respond with gladness and joy in understanding the judgments of God. Understanding God's righteous judgment should bring a gladness and joy within my heart. The greatest joy really is understanding that we all stand in the wake of God's judgment, but through Christ, you and I can stand blameless and innocent. There should be a gladness in your heart because God has declared you innocent through the work of Jesus Christ. As a child of God, we should find gladness when we ponder God's judgments and celebrate the fact that we are not condemned. As I sit and think about the great white throne, it's sobering to me. But it doesn't induce fear in my heart. Because the words of Romans 8 is very true, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I consider the judgment of God, there's a gladness in my heart because I have been saved from the condemnation of that judgment. There's a joy within. A second thing listed here in our response is that we should worship God for his judgment. We've already touched on this. The reality is, as I experience the fruit of his righteousness in my life, as he executes judgments in my life and in the world, it leads me to a place of, judge, uh, of, of worship because of his judgments. In fact, that gladness and joy that's mine as I've been freed from condemnation, that gladness and joy should swell within my heart and produce worship. I should, I should look at the reality that I've been declared innocent in God's divine court and it should induce praise for his name. And then finally... As God's children, we should respond to his judgment. We should tell 
of God's marvelous works to warn others of his judgment. When I understand the reality of God's judgment, it should give me a motivation to declare his marvelous works so that others might be warned and escape the judgment of God. When I recognize that divine judgment is a reality, it cannot be avoided that people stand condemned before God, it should motivate me to take the gospel of Christ and share with those people. God's children really should read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 every day. Because if that won't motivate you to tell your friends and family the gospel, I don't know what will. The reality that they stand condemned and face an eternity of damnation in a place that is called the lake of fire. If that doesn't inspire you to share the gospel with your friends and your family, I don't think anything will. See, God's judgment for his children is not a thing to be feared. For in it, we find gladness and joy, a place of worship, and a motivation to tell people what we know about Jesus. If you're a child of God today, you don't need to stand in terror of God's judgment. You need to allow it to motivate you. If you're here today and you've never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, terror doesn't even come close to describing what you should be feeling because you are destined to stand before the great white throne and be cast away into a lake of fire. But you don't have to be. That can change today. If from the sincerity of your heart, you will call out to him, admitting your need to be forgiven, confessing that he is the only one who can forgive, calling out in belief that Jesus is the Savior and Lord and you're giving your life to him, he will rescue you out of that condemnation. He will work in you to impart his character and his righteousness. He will put you before the throne and say, this one's innocent because this one's under my blood. That could be you today. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. In just a moment, we're going to stand to our feet and have an invitation. And when we stand up, if today you have called out to Jesus to receive him as your Savior, I want you to come right down here to the front and tell me so I can pray for you and talk to you. If you have questions about that, it's something you know you want to do, but you're not exactly sure what to do, come talk to me. Just get up and walk right down here. Maybe you're here and you know you're a born-again believer and you're not afraid of God's judgment in your life, but you have family members or you have friends and they're still condemned in sin. Today's a day for you to lift them to the Lord and pray the Holy Spirit's conviction in their life and ask God to give you the boldness to go share the truth of the gospel.